Good morning. Welcome to worship here at First Church of New Knoxville. We're so glad that you've decided to worship with us today, whether you're here in the sanctuary, listening on the radio, or of course watching on Facebook Live. We're so happy that we can gather together and worship the Lord this day. Today is the day that the Lord has made, so let us rejoice and be glad in it. And today is Independence Day. We're so grateful that we live in a country where we do have the freedom to gather and to worship, um, to worship as we see fit and worship God as he commands us to do. So uh, happy Independence Day, happy 4th of July. Uh, so, so grateful to live in this country and receive the blessings that we have. Um, it's also a reminder that we can be in prayer for our country and also for our brothers and sisters in Christ around the world who don't experience the same sorts of freedoms that we do. Um, there are no uh, particular, nothing in particular to announce this morning for our announcements, um, but I do want to point out that Pastor Kim Katterheinrich will be here and delivering the message next Sunday, July 11th. Um, I know he's a friend of the congregation, son of the congregation, grew up right here, and I want to encourage um, all of you to, to welcome him next week and hear what, he, uh, what, what the Lord is going to speak through him as he delivers the message next week. We will also be serving communion at the altar next Sunday. And so I want to uh, just encourage you all to be a part of that as possible. With that being said, I do want to encourage you to look at your bulletins, take a look and see what's going on, um, and encourage you now at this time to stand and join us for our call to worship if you're able to do so. Our call to worship is taken from the 33rd Psalm, verses 1 through 5, as well as verses 16 through 22. Sing joyfully to the Lord, you righteous. It is fitting, for it is right and true. He is faithful in all he does. The Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. No king is saved by the size of his army. No warrior escapes by his great strength. A horse is a vain hope for deliverance. Despite all its great strength, it cannot save. But the eyes of the Lord are on those who fear him, on those whose hope is in his unfailing love, to deliver them from death and keep them alive in famine. We wait in hope for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. In him our hearts rejoice, for we trust in his holy name. May your unfailing love be with us, Lord, even as we put our hope in you. I invite you to remain standing as we worship the Lord together. The first praise song is The Goodness of God. the 
Amen, amen. At this time, I want to invite all children to come forward for Children's Chat with Miss Sharon. You can all be seated. Good morning. Come on down. Can we all sit in a row? Let's come down one step. Let's all sit in a row and sit kind of close together. Squeeze in a little bit more up on the top step here. I, I need you to all sit close together today. Can you sit up here? Can you skip one? Because I have something. Okay. Do we have everyone? Just about. Just about. Who can tell me what country we live in? What country do we live in? United United States of America. That is correct. And... Have there always been people in the United States of America? I'm going to put this. I'm going to put this on your lap right here. Can you just hold that? Okay. Can you just hold that? Actually, let's unfold it a little bit so everybody can see the flag. Okay. There you go. Let's all hold the flag. Okay. So what holiday is today? The 4th of July. And why do we celebrate the 4th of July? We got freedom from England, which is also known as Great Britain. And so we're going to talk today about how America was born. Okay. So there haven't really always been people in the United States. There might have been some Indians. And when the pilgrims first came, well, before that, when Christopher Columbus came as an adventurer to find the new world in 1492, he found a new land, and there were lots of trees, and he started telling all of the people in Europe that there was a new land, and it was a beautiful land and it had lots of trees to build houses and stuff with and so more and more Europeans started coming to the United States and in 1620 the pilgrims came and a lot of the reason why people were coming to the United States because in some of the other countries the king was making all the rules and the people that came to the United States wanted to be able to worship as they wanted. The very purpose of the pilgrims in 1620 was to establish a government based on the Bible. The New England Charter confirmed this goal, to advance the enlargement of Christian religion to the glory of God Almighty. 
So at first, when all the people came, they made 13 colonies. And that's why there are 13 red and white stripes on the flag. Okay, that's, that's why there's 13. The goal of government, based on scripture, was further reaffirmed by individual colonies, such as the Rhode Island Charter of 1683, which begins, We submit our persons, lives, and estates unto our Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and to all those perfect and most absolute laws of his he has given us in his holy word. Those absolute laws became the basis of our Declaration of Independence, which includes in its first paragraph an appeal to the laws of nature and of God. So then on July 4th of 1776, there was signed in Philadelphia one of America's most historic documents. It was called the Declaration of Independence. And that's what we're celebrating today. It marked the birth of this nation, which under God was destined for world leadership. We often forget that in declaring independence from an earthly power like a king, our forefathers made a declaration of dependence on Almighty God. The closing words of this document solemnly declare, with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence, we mutually pledge to our lives, our fortunes, to each other, our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Do you remember last week when Mrs. Carolyn Lammers talked about in God we trust? That's really what, part of what we're talking about today. In 1861, from 18, until 1865, that became the morale booster phrase during the American Civil War. And in 1787, the Constitution is what was written, which was the rules for the United States. And I'm going to read part of that, okay? In the summer of 1787, representatives met in Philadelphia to write the Constitution. After they had struggled for several weeks and had made little or no progress, 81-year-old Benjamin Franklin rose and addressed the troubled and disagreeing convention that was about to adjourn in confusion. In the beginning of the contest with Britain, when we were sensible of danger, we had daily prayers in this room for divine protection. Our prayers, sir, were heard and they were graciously answered. All of us who were engaged in the struggle must have observed frequent instances of a superintending providence in our favor. Have we now forgotten this powerful friend? Or do we imagine we no longer need his assistance? I have lived a long time, sir, and the longer I live, the more convincing proof I see of this truth, that God governs the affairs of man. And if a sparrow cannot fall from the sky... Without his notice, is it probable that an empire can rise without his aid? We have been assured in the sacred writings, except for that the Lord that firmly believed this. So therefore, every morning when they would meet, they would have a prayer. And that's the way it is with Congress. Every time they meet, they have a prayer before they have the recession. So in the United States, as more and more people came and settled in the countries, eventually we ended up with what we call states instead of colonies, and we have 50 states in the United States, right? And that's why there are 50 stars on the flag to represent the 50 states. Psalm 33, verse 12, says, Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord. We want the Lord to cover us with his grace and his goodness, just like this blanket. 
because we can't make all the rules for ourselves. The concluding words of the national anthem summarize the fact that the United States was made a commitment to God and his principles. Now I have something for you. Blessed with victory and peace, may the heaven-rescued land praise the power that has made and preserved us a nation. Then conquer we must when our cause it is just. And this be our motto, in God is our trust. And the star-spangled banner forever shall wave o'er the land of the free and the home of the brave. So let's say a prayer as we pray for all of the people who help govern our land. Okay, let's close our eyes. Lord, we pray that the 16 men who affect daily, who make the daily decisions for us, the president, the senators, the two, the U.S. congressmen from our district, the governor, the state senator, the state representative, and the nine Supreme Court justices, we pray that they hear this prayer. We pray that they realize their personal sinfulness and their daily need for cleansing of their sin by Jesus Christ. We pray that they would recognize their personal inadequacy to fulfill their tasks, and that they would depend upon God for knowledge, wisdom, and the courage to do what is right. We pray that they would reject all counsel that violates spiritual principles, trusting God to prove them right. We pray that they would resist those who would pressure them to violate their conscience, we pray that they would reverse the trends of socialism and humanism in this nation, both of which defy man rather than God, or deify man rather than God. We pray that they would be ready to sacrifice their personal ambitions and political careers for the sake of this nation, if yielding them would be in the best interests of their country. We pray that they would rely upon prayer and the word of God as the source of their daily strength, wisdom, and courage. We pray that they would restore dignity, honor, trustworthiness, and righteousness to the office they hold. We pray that they would remember to be good examples in their conduct to their fathers, mothers, sons, and daughters of this nation. And we pray that they would be reminded daily that they are accountable to Almighty God for the decisions they make. Very good. You may go to your seats and you may keep your flags. Have a happy 4th of July. Thank you. This is the time where we are going to go ahead and collect the offering. Our offering this morning does support the general fund here at First Church in New Knoxville. Um, we're thankful for your, your faithful and gracious support of the ministry here. Um, and I want to invite the deacons to come forward at this time. Yeah. 
Amen. I invite you to remain standing as we sing our next hymn this morning. It's from hymn number 58 in the blue hymnals. This is my father's world. Amen. Amen. I invite you to pray with me. Father God, we thank you that you are our king, that you are our God, and that you are righteous and good and holy and just. Lord, on on days like today, we remember you and your blessings and your provision and your graciousness towards your people and all of creation, Lord. Think of words like in the Declaration of Independence that say, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, and that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Lord, all of our privileges, all of our rights certainly come from You, and we get to experience them because of the blessing of living in this country. So we thank You, Lord, on this Independence Day that we can celebrate by worshiping You together this morning. We have the freedoms we have from you, and and we get to experience them, Lord, because of of the the freedoms that were hard-fought and and won and earned by those who gave themselves for this country. So on this Independence Day, we thank you, Lord, for the freedoms we have. We also pray for our leaders at all levels, and, and Lord, just as your word says, and to pray for all those who are in authority over us. We do that this day, that we may live good and peaceable lives, Lord, in this place. Lord, we also pray for reconciliation and healing during this time of division. Lord, we are in, in many ways a divided country at times. And so we pray, Lord, for peace, for reconciliation, for healing. And Lord, may that start here, Lord, with your people. Because, Lord, we know that the gospel is the necessary ingredient, the hope of the world, Lord. It is the only way that, that people will be, be brought together is by, by together putting our trust in you and our hope in you. And so on this day, on this Independence Day, we acknowledge and look to you and the hope that is in your word and in your gospel and the freedom that, that Christ brings through his victory on the cross and in the empty tomb. Lord, we also pray for the, the needs that are in our, in our community, in our nation, in our world. We especially think this day of 
of the tragedy that took place in Surfside, at the Surfside condo in Florida, Lord. Um, as of this morning, I see 24 confirmed dead, 121 still missing, Lord. We ask for your peace to be with those families who lost loved ones. We ask for healing for those who were injured. We thank you for the first responders and all those who have been putting themselves in harm's way to look for those who are lost. What a great reminder, what a great example of the love that you have for us, Lord. And so we pray for those that are still missing, that they would be found well. We pray for the families who are missing loved ones, that they would find comfort and peace in you and you alone, Lord. And we pray for our time together this morning. We thank you for the opportunity to worship you through song, to to pray to you, Lord, in, in freedom, and now in just a few moments to hear your word read and preached. We pray that everything we do this day would bring glory and honor to you. We pray these things in the name of Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. You may be seated. The scripture reading for today is Revelation 2, verses 8 through 11. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you to prison to test you, And you will suffer persecution for ten days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. Thank you, Sharon. Let's pray together again. Father God, now as we open your word together, I pray that our full focus and attention would be on you and the truth that is found there. I pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would guide my words. May may you give me words to speak. And Holy Spirit, may you also open the hearts and minds of all those who hear your word today. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. When I was... When I was a teenager and in a youth group, one of my favorite books I liked to read uh, was a book called Jesus Freaks, which sounds maybe a little off-putting at times, but it was a book that was put out in conjunction with the Christian band DC Talk, whose famous, most famous song was a song called Jesus Freaks, and an organization called Voice of the Martyrs, which, which promoted um, the knowledge of, of the persecuted church around the world, especially in places where maybe not, maybe there wasn't a whole lot of persecution being experienced or felt. And so they do a lot of work in the United States and in places like Western Europe promoting what, what our brothers and sisters in Christ suffer and what they have to go through to be Christ followers in parts of the world where um, experienced reality. And the reason I love this book so much is it told, told stories from church history, but also from modern day of people who are willing who are willing to suffer for Christ, who are willing to put their, their own safety, their own uh, provision, right, their own comfort to the side in order to remain faithful to Jesus. And the reason that book came to mind this morning is because the letter that Jesus wrote to the church in Smyrna, which we just heard read for us from Revelation chapter 2, Jesus is speaking to a church who is experiencing those same things. They're experiencing affliction. They're experiencing persecution. And Jesus has words of encouragement to share with them in their suffering. But before we dig into that, I think it's important for us to talk just briefly about suffering in general. 
Because we're going to talk here this morning about, about these Christians who are suffering for Christ. But we also know that suffering is a very real thing in our world today, right? And it's a, it's a, there is a general type of suffering, right, that all people experience in a various forms and in various degrees and at various times, right? That is a common human experience that we all, all go through at some point in life. Right? They say the only, you know, the, there's the saying that the only thing certain in life is death and taxes. Right? Well, you could probably add suffering in almost, for, for the most part, for people. In one degree or another, all people suffer. Right? Whether that's health-related issues, whether that's financial trouble, maybe it's a, a family or, or marriage situation. Right? All people in different ways at different times suffer. That's a common experience that all people go through. And not to downgrade those, that kind of suffering, because that is certainly real and certainly significant in people's lives. But the reality is that what we're looking at here today, the words that Jesus is speaking to the church in Smyrna, is about people who are suffering for Christ. And there's an important distinction to be made there that I want us to make sure we are aware of and that we're focusing on here today. Because the words that Jesus has here for these people, are he's not addressing suffering in general, although some of the things that he says may apply to that as well. He's talking specifically about those who are suffering for his name's sake, for Christ. And it's, so, so as we talk through here today, as we, as we talk about this, what we say today may apply to your situation. It may apply to the suffering or the pain or the hardship that you are currently experiencing but it certainly applies to those who are suffering for the sake of Christ. And we'll, we'll talk a little bit more later about what that means. But I just want to make sure we're kind of all on the same page here, that we're not talking about suffering in general, right? That is the result of and the reality of sin in the world, but suffering for Christ, which is the direct and or indirect consequences of choosing to follow Jesus. And the reality is that all Christ followers, if you have put your trust in Christ, if you are, if you call yourself a Christian, then you will suffer for Christ. It may not be in the same way as Christians in China suffer. It may not be in the same way that, that Christians in North Korea suffer, but all Christ followers are called to take up their cross and follow him. And that's going to include self-denial. That's going to include hard decisions. That's going to include choices that will put your comfort maybe your provision, and maybe even your, your safety and well-being at risk. But that's the choice that Jesus is asking us to make in order to follow him. And so what's Jesus' message to this church? What's Jesus' message to us today? Well, we see here what Jesus is calling the church in Smyrna to do is to remain faithful. And the only way to remain faithful in the face of suffering, in the midst of hardship, is to believe that Jesus is better than life itself. Do you believe that? Do you believe that knowing Jesus and being known by him, do you believe that following him is better than anything else this world has to offer? Better than any other experience you can have? Better than having enough money in the bank account or a nice house or a nice job? Is knowing Jesus better even than your own well-being? from an earthly perspective. Knowing who he is and what he's done for us helps us to put suffering, especially suffering for his name's sake, into proper perspective. And so if we want to remain faithful, we need to keep our focus on him. And so we need to start with Jesus first. Let's talk about who he is and what he's done for us and what, what Jesus himself is saying to the church here in Smyrna. And then we'll talk about what that means for those that are experiencing suffering of all kinds, but specifically suffering for the sake of Christ. So we see here to the angel of the church in Smyrna, he tells John to write this. He says, these are the words of him who is first and last, who died and came to life again. We'll see as we travel through these letters to the churches in Revelation that Jesus uses very uh, vivid imagery to describe himself. We saw that last week. We see it again here, and we'll see it again in the letters to follow. And here there's two things that Jesus focuses on, that he's the first and the last, and that he was dead and is now alive again. Those are two very important things that Jesus reveals about himself. So he was first and last. He is, in other words, he is eternal. 
He is the one who was and is and is to come. He was there in the beginning with God. Jesus wasn't just a person. He wasn't just a good teacher. He wasn't just a moral example to follow. He was and he is and he always will be the very God of this universe, the second person of the Trinity, the one in whom and through whom and by whom all things were created. Right? John 1.1 1, 1, the very first words of that gospel say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The Word was with God in the beginning, right? That is how John opens his gospel. And of course, the Word is Jesus. So Jesus is eternal. He always was, always is, and always will be. But he also is the one who conquered death through the cross and the resurrection. In Second Timothy chapter 1, verses 7 through 12, Paul writes this. He says, For the Spirit of God, excuse me, the Spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self discipline. So do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord or of me, his prisoner. Rather, join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. For he has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because of anything we've done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. But it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. So Paul says, you know, we experience suffering for the gospel, but it's, but it's, not, it's, not, for no, it's not for no reason, right? We experience suffering. We accept the suffering we experience because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. That he has saved us and called us to a holy life, not because we've done anything to deserve it, but because of his own purpose and his own grace. And in doing so, Jesus has destroyed the power of death. When Jesus died on the cross, when he laid his life down for us, right? He was, that was the greatest moment of victory, even though it looked like defeat. Because in that moment, Jesus conquered death. He conquered sin. And that was proven to us three days later when he rose from the grave. And this is just like in last week's uh, description of Jesus. We see that these words were also, uh, Jesus himself spoke these words in Revelation chapter 1, verses 17 through 18. There, as Jesus is speaking to John, he says, John says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. And he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forever and ever. Right? That's, an important, that's an important description there. He holds the keys of death and Hades. That means he has the power over it. Right? Jesus has the power to grant eternal life to all who believe and trust in him. Now, why is this description important? Right? Why is it important that Jesus identifies himself as, as, he, as eternal and the one who has conquered death? Because Smyrna is facing persecution. Just in these few short verses, in, in verses 8 through 11, we see that Jesus identifies their poverty, that they're being slandered, that they are suffering, that they face imprisonment and even death. And so knowing that Jesus is eternal, knowing that he has conquered death is, is an encouragement to them. Right? His faithfulness he, he is eternal. He always was, always is, and always will be. And his faithfulness towards his promises and towards his people is not dependent on, on current circumstances. Whatever we're facing in the world today does not change who Jesus is. All right, whatever problems you're facing doesn't change God's goodness or his faithfulness. Right? He is not dependent on us or he is not dependent on our, on our circumstances. So no matter what suffering you're experiencing, no matter what hardship that may be, Jesus is faithful. And also Jesus himself was persecuted to the point of death. In Philippians 2, it describes how, how Jesus was obedient even to the point of death on the cross. When I was in high school, the, the film The Passion of the Christ came out. How many of you have seen The Passion of the Christ? It's been a few years now. Um, it was, I remember one of the reasons that it, it created a lot of controversy at that time is because it received an R rating. It received an R rating for the violence, the blood, the gore that was depicted on screen of Jesus' arrest, his, his trial, his beating, and ultimately his crucifixion. 
And I remember going to the theater with my youth group and everybody was just in stunned silence the whole time. Even when the movie ended, everybody just walked out and didn't say a word. Just of how that was depicted, what Jesus went through himself. But at the same time, I've heard historians say and and biblical scholars say that even that movie that received an R rating was toned down compared to what Christ really went through. Knowing what Jesus suffered for us is just beyond our understanding, beyond, beyond our ability to comprehend. And that's just the physical experience, the physical suffering that Jesus experienced. That was nothing compared to the spiritual agony that he experienced when he took the weight of our sin upon his shoulders. So Jesus conquered death for us, which means he lives and so shall we. Death does not have the final say. Right? That's the good news of the gospel. That's the good news we can cling to in the midst of our suffering, our hardship, even persecution, is that death does not have the final say. In Hebrews 2, 14 through 15, it says, Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity, so that by his death he might break the power of him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. We share in his suffering so that we may too may share in his glory. We also see here another word of encouragement that we see actually running throughout all seven of these letters is that Jesus knows us. In each one of the letters, after the description of Jesus, here we see it in verse 9, he says, I know your afflictions and your poverty. Each one of these letters starts with a statement, I know. Jesus knows us. He sees us, both our good and our bad, right? And nothing is hidden from his sight. When we suffer, whether it's, it's, for, it's, it's some sort of personal suffering or general suffering or whether it's suffering for Christ, we are not forgotten. Jesus sees us in our, in our hardship. He sees the pain. He sees the difficulties. And he is present with us. And he doesn't trivialize our suffering either. He doesn't, he doesn't look at the church in Smyrna and say, don't, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. He doesn't say, you know, rub some dirt on it and get over it. Right? He tells them, I know you. I see what you are experiencing. He acknowledges the reality of their suffering and doesn't just dismiss it out of hand. And so we need to acknowledge that real suffering and real hardship for what it is, don't just sweep it under the rug and pretend it doesn't exist. Jesus knows, and so we're not forgotten. And he understands, he understands more than anyone else in the world because he suffered for our sake. And the last thing about what Jesus says here before we move on to suffering itself is Jesus says, don't be afraid. It's a common command throughout Scripture, but, but it's so important. Right? Anytime an angel appears in front of human beings, their first words are always, don't be afraid. Fear is based on current circumstances, on our own personal ability to handle it. But hope is based on God's character, his faithfulness, and his promises. How is it possible to not be afraid facing suffering? Because Jesus is eternal and he has conquered death for us. So that's who Jesus is. And that's the one that we need to focus on. When we are, no matter what hardships we're experiencing, if we keep our eyes on Christ, it will help us to remain faithful. But there are three things that that Jesus talks about here about suffering that I think are important for us to focus on for a few minutes as well. And the first thing is that suffering does not mean that God hates or rejects you or that you've done something wrong to deserve it. I think one of the big lies that goes through our heads when we experience suffering of any kind is that we tell ourselves, I must have done something wrong to deserve this. We think we live in a world of of direct, you know, consequences for all of our actions, right? Newton said for every action there's an equal and opposite reaction. And so we think, I'm experiencing hardship, I'm experiencing suffering and pain. I must have done something wrong to deserve this. But Jesus never, never accuses the, the, the believers in this church of doing anything wrong. In fact, this is one of only two of the seven letters where Jesus doesn't call them to repent of anything. In the other five, there's plenty for them to repent of, but, but he does not say one thing about their need for repentance here. In other words, he's not calling out a specific sin and saying, this is why you're suffering. 
He's just acknowledging the suffering itself. Our suffering does not mean that God hates or rejects us, that we've done something wrong to deserve it. In fact, it's important for us to make the distinction between earthly suffering and the spiritual riches that we can have in Christ. He says here, he says, I see your affliction and your poverty, yet you are rich. He's not talking about worldly wealth. He's not talking about the amount of money they have in the bank account. He's talking about spiritual riches. He acknowledges their suffering, yet he also points out that they are rich in the only way that really matters, knowing Christ and being faithful to him. In 2 Corinthians 8 8 and 9, it says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. What's Paul talking about there? Jesus took our sin upon himself. Right? He became poor in the sense that he took our sin upon himself so that we might become rich, that we might be forgiven, that we might become uh, children of God. And then you got passages like Matthew 5, 11 through 12 that say, Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Right? Looking at passages like that from a worldly perspective makes no sense. How can we rejoice in our persecution? How can we, how can we rejoice in our suffering? The suffering we may experience in this life is not an indication of our standing before God. Jesus does not call people, uh, excuse me, there are people in this world who are blessed, blessed materially, live a life of comfort, experience no suffering, but they are spiritually dead. Right? And the same is true on the other side. There are people who suffer in this world, but are spiritually healthy, who are spiritually mature and know Jesus. Our earthly experiences do not directly correlate with our spiritual status before Christ. The second thing we see is that suffering is temporary, but Jesus is forever. He talks about the affliction that they're going to experience, and he says, You'll be, you will suffer persecution for ten days. Now, there's a lot of times, uh, you know, numbers in the Bible uh, refer to very specific amounts of time, and there's sometimes where, where numbers are, are used in a more general sense. And I believe here, what Jesus is talking about here is not that there's 10 literal days that they're going to experience suffering, although that could have been their specific situation in Smyrna. But what Jesus is alluding to in a greater sense is that, that the suffering that we experience is only temporary. Even if it seems like a lot, even if it seems like, like all that is, that it's all consuming, that it's never going to end, from an eternal perspective, our suffering is only temporary. But Jesus is forever. Right, the big question we often, uh, or the big, big lie that we often struggle with in this area is that suffering or hardship must be resolved in this life, that we must see some good come out of it in the end, or that our suffering is all-encompassing and never-ending, and it's too much for God to handle. But we see here Jesus knows. Remember, he's eternal. He's sovereign. And so he's telling them, look, your, your suffering is real. I know what you're going through. But know that it's only temporary. Know that it's not going to last forever. Paul says something similar in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but what is unseen. What is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. And the psalmist in Psalm 30 reminds us, Weeping may stay for the night, but rejoicing comes in the morning. Whatever, whatever you're suffering right now, whatever you're going through, even if it seems like it's all-consuming and never-ending, know that it is only temporary from an eternal perspective. That if you remain faithful, if you put your trust in Christ, if you put your hope in Him, that nothing we experience in this life will be forever, the good or the bad. Because the only thing that will last for all eternity is our, our relationship with Him. That's the one thing that can never be taken away. And it's the one thing that will carry with us into eternity. So suffering does not indicate our, uh, does not directly correlate with our spiritual status before Christ. Suffering is temporary, 
we also see that suffering can be a test of our faith. A big question, a big, big doubt, a big lie we often tell ourselves is that God is doing to this, God is doing this to me. God is making me suffer, so therefore he must not be loving or good. But Jesus here reminds us that our suffering can be a test of our faith. The word test here means to examine, to discover the true nature of something. Now that doesn't mean that God ordains our suffering, but he does allow it to happen. God does allow us to experience suffering so that our faith can be refined and strengthened. The people in Smyrna were facing opposition both internal and also external from the enemy, from the devil himself. So there, it wasn't God who was who was making this happen, but God was certainly allowing it to happen. And that was a very difficult dynamic to understand. We have to look no further than the book of Job to see that dynamic at work. Satan is the one, if you're familiar with the story of Job, Satan is the one who causes Job to suffer. It was his idea, and it was he is the direct cause of it. Yet God, in his sovereignty, allows it to happen and ultimately uses it for his glory and for, and for Job's good. And we have to remember, too, that God doesn't always allow nice, neat answers for why we experience what we experience in this life. As I was kind of throwing some ideas around for, for how to handle this passage in the office this week, Pastor Tori said, so sometimes there are things that are just above our pay grade. Right? I think that's such a great description for, for how God responded to Job and his story. Job, after 37 chapters of complaining, of hearing from his friends, finally hears back directly from the Lord. And God doesn't directly answer Job's questions. Instead, he says, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? We see that in Job 38.4, right? We don't always get nice, neat answers as to why we go through what we go through. But we do know from Scripture that God can use whatever we go through, the good, the bad, and everything in between, to strengthen our faith and help us to rely on him more. You see, suffering reveals what it you truly love and what you truly care about suffering strengthens our faith because it forces us to trust in jesus it forces us to rely on him because when when rubber hits the road there's nowhere else we can turn there's nothing else we can rely on that will sustain us through our suffering jesus and jesus alone can do that he is the one we turn to when we have nowhere else to turn and he is the one thing in our lives that can never be taken away so jesus encourages them to be faithful even to the point of death as i said before this makes no sense from a worldly perspective if the world is all there is if this life is all there is then why would you remain faithful through suffering if it results in death well because we are people that are convinced that there is more to life than just what we see that there is eternal life that we have to look forward to. As Paul reminds the Philippian church in Philippians 3, our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await a savior from there. And being faithful to Jesus is more important than living because Jesus is worth dying for. He died for us so that we can live for him. Jesus closes this passage by by telling those that, that have the ears to hear that the victorious ones will not be hurt at all by the second death. All right, we may suffer in this life, but the one who trusts in Christ have nothing to fear about the next. The second death, of course, is a reference to the final judgment that's described later in the book of Revelation. So two things I want you to think about as we wrap up our time here this morning. I invite the praise team to, to come forward as we close out our service. But two things I want you to think about. One, keep your eyes on Jesus. In Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, it says, Let us run the race in perseverance. Let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. When you are suffering, you have to look no further than Jesus for the encouragement that we need. And lastly, we need to be willing to make the hard choices. Are you willing to choose Jesus over anything else that comes along in this life? 
Are you willing to put him first above all else? Because if, if you can make that decision, then you can certainly remain faithful in the face of suffering. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for this day. We thank you that, we, that you are better than, than every, anything and everything this world has to offer. And though we may suffer for your sake, though we may go through hardships and difficult experience in this life, that you are better than that. Help us to remain people that, in Christ's name, amen. I invite you to stand as we close our service by singing our last praise song, Better. the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. You may go in peace.
You stepped into my Egypt and you took 